much longer than we wanted, drawn out process of uh, searching for a pastor since the end of July uh, this last year uh, to take on the role of uh, pastor of student and children's discipleship here at Chillicothe Bible Church. And we have gotten to know over those, over those months, the elders and I, uh, a number of uh, highly qualified, gifted people, but it's really a matter of finding the right fit uh, with our church and with that person. And uh, we believe, uh, as elders, that we have found that person, and we are pleased to uh, uh, present him to you, introduce him to you, if you've not met him yet, uh, Mr. Josh Duran. So if you'd welcome him. Hi. Hi. It's good to be here. I've had the chance to be up in Chillicothe a couple times now, and I've really gotten to uh, enjoy your town here. Um, it's been fun. I've enjoyed visiting. I've enjoyed meeting um, the people here. Uh, and today, I also got to meet the youth. Um, I, I enjoyed that, too. They're a really good group, and I, I love that they, uh, I was just getting to know them, they said, we're weird, and we're proud of being weird. Um, and I think that's awesome. I think, I, I always say, everyone's weird. Some people just hide it better than others. And hiding it's not a virtue either, right? Just embrace it. Um, so, yeah. But today I have the privilege of continuing the sermon series. I know you guys have been um, going through the Gospel of John together, uh, and you're making it. Uh, you're all the way to chapter 10 now. So I get to do that first part of chapter 10 with you today. Uh, before we do that, though, I usually... Um, whenever I'm preaching or I'm teaching, I like to zoom out to the big picture first um, because I find that a lot of misunderstandings when we approach Scripture are because we don't get the big picture in mind. Or we just zoom in on this little point and then we get confused or a misunderstanding. So if I zoom out first and then we look at the specific text, I think it's going to help us a lot today. Um, and so for this, I want you guys to zoom out all the way to the whole picture of the Bible uh, and notice something with me. The Bible talks about sheep and shepherds a lot. I mean, a whole lot. Uh, and you guys probably um, will connect with this a little better than, um, than the people in St. Louis I've been studying the scripture with over the last couple of years, being in a rural town. But even you uh, do not fully grasp what it meant to be a shepherd in the pre-modern era in the early, um, in the early AD and BC centuries. Uh, you don't quite grasp fully what that is. So I just want to explore what is the Bible talking about when it's talking about shepherds, right? Um, and, and what we notice is, for shepherds in the Bible, sheep were their life. Like, they were out all day with them, and they even slept at night with them. Sheep take a lot of care, a lot of attention, a lot of taking care of them, or they will get sick and pass away. They, they do not, domesticated sheep do not survive well on their own. They get picked off really, really quickly. Uh, but then we see what the Bible likes to do with this is he likes to call God's people sheep. So just if we're paying attention, what God is saying about us is we are pretty helpless on our own. Uh, the Bible never uses that as an insult. 
It's just more in a, a reality of what it means to be a human being. And we, we kind of get that. I mean, look at a baby human being. It does not just survive in the wild on its own. Other animals might grow up quickly and, and survive, but human beings cannot survive without the use of other people around us, without tools, without clothing. We just are not meant for this fallen environment without a lot of care and attention. So on one hand, we get that physically, right? And the Bible is saying that that's not just true physically, but that's true spiritually and emotionally and relationally. We are very helpless on our own. So the Bible likes to talk about God's people as sheep. Um, but he also uses this image of the shepherd. So he uses that in two ways. One, he talks about himself as the shepherd of his sheep. Uh, but he also talks about his leaders over his people as being the shepherds of his sheep. They're kind of under shepherds. So you get this imaging, and you, and you always kind of get this image of these sheep who are also appointed as under shepherds. So it's this interesting dynamic. And so this kind of comes ahead when we get to the prophet of Ezekiel. Uh, so Ezekiel, this is at the time when Israel has been sinning against God so bad that he basically eliminates them as a nation. He sends them Babylon, and they take these people and bring them off into exile. Uh, Ezekiel is a prophet during that time. And what God wants Ezekiel to tell, specifically to the shepherds, the leaders of Israel, um, and so Ezekiel 34 is going to be the background and explain what Jesus is talking about in John 10. Everyone who, um, who's a scholar who's studying it, when they read John 10, they're like, oh, he's pointing to this. Um, and, and basically what God does in that chapter is he says, listen, leaders, what you have done is you have gotten fat off of my sheep. You've used them for your own wealth, for your own feeding, everything else. But when it came time to protect them and take care of them, you abandoned them. You refused to take care of my sheep. Uh, you have been terrible shepherds. And so he makes this, this statement. He says, so from this day forward, I am against you. All right. Do you guys ever have, when you were kids, when your parents were really mad and yelling, but you're still kind of crazy running with your siblings running around, um, even though they were yelling, but all of a sudden your parents just got quiet and said, and started counting one, two, three. It was always the moment when my parents got quiet that I knew I crossed the line. I'm not saying God is parents like us. He is infinitely better parents than we could ever hope to be. Um, but when I read that passage in Scripture, like, it's such a simple statement. I, from this day forward, I am against you. Like, it's not this prophetic warnings to you to turn around. It's like God got quiet and said, enough. To me, that is one of the most terrifying passages in the scripture, to have God against you. But the reason is important. He cares for his sheep, and he takes the shepherding of his sheep very, very seriously. But that's not all he does. He doesn't just warn the shepherds. He says something else. He says, I am going to come and personally shepherd my people. So when we look at John 10 together here, what I want us to see is Jesus is pointing to that passage and he's saying, I'm fulfilling it. I am God becoming a human being to shepherd my people personally. 
And so um, when we look at this passage, what we're going to do, we're going to explore. And, and on one level, it's talking about um, the shepherds of Israel. And, and God is saying that you are not, like, even now, you Pharisees and scribes, you are still like the shepherds back then, and you're not shepherding my people well. Um, and then there's another dynamic, too, because we see even after Jesus returns to heaven, he still appoints leaders of his church and his people to be shepherds. And so on one level, this passage is pointing and saying, okay, you guys who are leaders, you need to shepherd like Jesus is doing here. So I want us to be able to take that away and say, okay, all of us who are Christians are called at least into a small part to disciple and bring up other Christians. To a small part, we're called to shepherd. Uh, to an even bigger part, the leaders of the church um, are called to shepherd God's people as well. I don't know if you've ever um, thought about this, but that root word, that pastor, that root word pastor is the same when you look at shepherd, right? A pastor is a shepherd. God is very intentional about his word choice there. So on the other hand, if you're a pastor or you're a leader of his church, you've got to look to this and say, how did Jesus shepherd? That's how I need to shepherd, not like the Pharisees and scribes. Um, but that's all secondary. Mostly when we go into this text together, what I want you to get from it is I want to show you Jesus. I want to show you how he is the good shepherd and how he takes care of us. Um, so that is my hope today. Uh, but before we really dig in and explore this passage together, I'm going to pray one more time with you guys, if that's all right. So, um, yeah, I'm going to pray. Father, you promise that when your word go goes out, it does not return void. Um, because of that, I pray that you would use this time as we explore the scripture together to speak to us. Um, and that past any of my own human limitations of speech and clarity and, and even understanding, that you would move beyond that and use the word itself to edify us and to move us towards loving you more deeply. Amen. All right, so let's look at John 10 together again. So these first six verses, I want to read one more time. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So just to understand a little bit of what's going on here, um, Jesus, in talking to the Pharisees, um, and to the people around him saying, all right, I am, this is who I am. But then they don't understand. So the rest of this first part of John 10 is explaining what he is saying to them. And just as a quick observation, like, I am so glad God is patient with us. Like, we read all throughout the scriptures, and we see one thing consistent, and that is people do not understand him. So he goes back and he teaches them again and again and again, and he still does that with us. Like when we read the scripture through for the first time, there's a lot of it we don't get. God doesn't necessarily judge us harshly about what we don't understand. He just brings us back 
and slowly teaches us once again. So when we explore, all right, what does this saying of his mean? This is his explanation. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they have, may have life and have it abundantly. Okay, so this, in your Bible, if you read this, you saw Jesus uh, is the good shepherd or something along that as, the, as kind of the title that was put into there. Now, what I just read was Jesus saying, I am the door. So the same figure of speech, he's saying, I am the door and I am the shepherd. What, what's going on there? Why is he mixing up the metaphor? Um, part of that, I think, is have you ever used a metaphor to help someone explain and then they took that metaphor way beyond what you were ever meaning it to be? I mean, you know that. If you, if you ever taught and you use these figures of speech or these metaphors, people are like, I get it, and then they start explaining what they get, and you're like, whoa. It's just a metaphor, okay? Let's not read too much into it. I think Jesus right here by saying, I am the door, undercuts a misunderstanding right away. Uh, so if you are in the first century with Jesus, you're familiar with shepherds, and you know this. Um, when they're out in the field eating, their sheep are eating by day, that's fine, but they bring them all in together, and a lot of times different flocks all go in from different shepherds into this pen at night to protect them. Um, and so then what happens is there's someone at the door, and then the shepherd comes, and the sheep know his name, so he leads all of his, his sheep out. The misunderstanding that could happen here is this, that what Jesus is saying is he is the good shepherd, he is a better shepherd than the Pharisees, he's even the best shepherd. All other shepherds out there aren't good, but there are still other shepherds. There's still other ways to go into the sheepfold. Now, if you're following the metaphor, and you continue listening to what Jesus says, this sheepfold, that is protection. That is salvation. Jesus is saying that I lead you to salvation and rest. I lead you to food and nourishment. The potential danger right here is the exclusivity of Christ. And this is what I mean. There is no other way to be saved but Jesus. There's not even less good ways. So what you, what you get right now um, is this movement called liberal Christianity. And that's nothing to do with politics or anything else associated with the word liberal. It's just this understanding of Christianity that doesn't necessarily take that the Bible is fully true and all these other beliefs. But one of them that comes with that is the belief that, yes, Jesus and Christianity, that's good. That's probably, some will even say, this is the best way to the truth. This is the best way for salvation. But it's not the only way. Other people, through other means, can come to salvation. Uh, uh, and that is not new to this century. Um, one of the things that got Christians in trouble from the very beginning, from the first century onward, is they lived in a society a Roman society that had a pantheon of gods. Now, Rome would go around co conquering new nations and territories, and one of the ways to get them to join the empire and be stable is they would take the local gods and they would bring them into the Roman pantheon. They say, yes, we absolutely, we're good with your gods and your tradition. Let's keep that going. You're Roman now. 
The problem with Israel, with Judaism, and then Christianity here was they said, no, he's not just a God, he is the God. And from the very beginning, with pluralistic societies that have multiple gods in multiple ways, saying that your God is the only way is going to get you in trouble. But Christianity has always said that. Christianity has never given an option for another way to salvation, another means. Now, because that is such a sharp critique of, uh, of Christianity, and it always has been, I want to spend just a little more time on that thought. Um, one of the things I think even Christians struggle with this concept that, that there are not other ways to salvation but through Jesus, this exclusivity, they think that that's, that's mean or that's unfair for some reason, is because we fundamentally misunderstand what our problem is. Now, when we go back to the beginning, to Genesis 1, we see this. We see Adam and Eve in the garden, and we see them perfect and flourishing and happy. We see that there's no d disease or death or evil and anger and violence. None of that is there. But then they decide on their own to disobey God. Now, what happens after that? Death enters in. Disease enters in. Violence against other human beings enters in. All sorts of oppression and hatred and evil and sorrow and loneliness enter in at that point. And we look back at this and we say, man, the problem is death and disease and, and hatred and anger and loyalty. That's the problem. What we misunderstand is that's the symptom. The problem is from that point forward, they were separated from God. The sorrow, the anger, the loneliness... Those are symptoms of that. We know that in God is complete happiness and joy and complete life and in complete love, right? You cannot have anger. You cannot have violence. You cannot have death exist within him. And so that it's that separation that causes that. So if we look back and we say, these are the ultimate problem, we need to go one more step back and say the ultimate problem is separation from God. The reason you can't get a solution to that ultimate problem without Jesus is because it doesn't even make sense. The ultimate problem is that we aren't connected to Jesus, that we aren't connected to God. And, and so that's what I want to challenge you today. I know um, even I have struggled with that in the past. Like, what about these people who, who, have, who are really, really good people? They just don't. They, they aren't Christian. They don't fully accept that Jesus thing. What about them? And, and, and what I want to challenge you on is, like, the ultimate problem is separation from God. So there can be no solution but with Jesus. He continues that thought, though. So he says, I am the door. Um, but then he enters in and he says, I am the good shepherd. Okay, so I'm the door, now I am the good shepherd. He says, anyone who does not enter by the door, any of others, um, they are thieves and robbers. They only want to steal, kill, and destroy, but I want to give abundant life. So when Jesus says he is the good shepherd, he's not just, he also explains what that means, and he contrasts himself with other options. So if he is the only one, all these alternatives only bring death and destruction uh, and sorrow. He says, I come to bring life. So that's one of the first things he says here, right? 
Not only is he a door, not only is he the only door, but he says, I am the good shepherd, and I am bringing you life. Uh, sometimes I think um, we misrepresent Christian, Christianity and we misrepresent Christ and the way we live sometimes. Uh, we talk about obedience and God and faithfulness and following Jesus like they're a chore. And discipline plays a part. Sometimes it's not fun to us. But it's not because those things in them of themselves don't have joy. It's because there's something wrong with us that we don't find joy in things that should give us joy. So um, one thing I learned about evangelism and sharing the gospel and, and, and representing Christ to people is that you have, to, you have to use words, right? You have to point them to Jesus and point them to that. But people notice how you live. Uh, if you're not happy following Jesus, they notice that. Uh, your way of life and your demeanor and your joy in Christ is just important in, in evangelism as your clarity of thought, as your presentation of the gospel. Uh, I think one thing that we need to do as Christians, if we take the gospel seriously, is to examine what brings us actual joy. Uh, and we need to look at that. And, and if we find that Jesus isn't bringing us joy, we need to ask why. Why is he not bringing us joy? Why do we find it in others? Because even though I talked about these other societies, we don't, in, in the West right now in America, we don't really have this like pantheon of gods, right? So we think that we're, we're safe from this idea that there are multiple ways to Jesus and there are multiple gods to worship. Um, and, and on one hand, that's right. They're, they're, we don't have societies where uh, multiple gods to worship is really an option here. Other places in the world, it's, it's still a thing. But here, the, the main traditions of one God in, in Christianity and in, in Judaism and all those, monotheism is still a thing. And we still believe in Jesus. But what we mistake is uh, that we think we don't have idolatry as a struggle, that we don't worship other things. Um, even though it's not a traditional God, when we worship other things, when we put other things as more important than Jesus, it becomes a God, right? Uh, so one, one thing that I always like to push back on, uh, especially when talking with youth, they're planning on making their college moves, they're planning on their career choice. What are the, what are the options and the advice they usually get? All right, pick, pick a place that'll give you a good education so that you can get a good job so that you can earn an early retirement, enjoy those years, right? This is kind of the American dream. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad. Getting a good job that pays the bills well is not a bad thing. What is bad is when that becomes ultimate. What is bad is when become, that becomes your ultimate goal and dream for the future. Uh, so when we look at what God is saying is he releases us uh, from some of these worries. He says, your ultimate doesn't end with anything here on earth. Your ultimate ends when I return and set things right. That's why Jesus talks about money so much. This is why he talks about storing up your treasure in heaven. It's not because money in itself is bad. It's bad when we worship it. It's bad when it becomes ultimate. So this verse even challenges us as Christians. This abundant life that Jesus is talking about can't be rooted in the material. But he goes on here. He says, uh, he says, 
the sheep hear his voice, and he calls him by name. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before him, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers, right? So, so first we know this. Jesus is the door. He is the good shepherd. The good shepherd brings life. But the next thing we know, he also knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. So this is going further, right? This is a relational aspect of Christianity. Christianity is not just about behaviors. It's not just about thoughts. It's about a relationship with someone. Uh, and so this, this is always one of the hardest scriptures for me to read was this idea that your sheep know his voice and they follow him. Uh, one of the, the hardest things I had trouble understanding at first was, how do I know what God is saying to me, right? Uh, and this really came up when I'm like, how do I know what God wants to, me to do for the future with my career choice, with everything else? How do I hear the voice of God? Does anyone else struggle with that? Like, Go ahead and raise your hand. Do you struggle knowing what God is saying to you? Okay, I understand that. Part of my misunderstanding, though, was I had this this wrong view from the very beginning. Uh, I went to God in these special moments like, this is a big decision. What is God telling me to do? Uh, I misunderstand something fundamentally from the beginning. So uh, when, when you, so this kind of sound weird at first. Just follow me a little bit. It'll make sense. When you are studying what forgeries are, whether it's forgeries of money or paintings or whatever else, what you start with is not how forgeries make them. You don't start out looking for those errors. What you start off studying is the real thing. When you want to talk about forging money and you want to be good at, at figuring out how to discover forgeries, you study what the dollar bill looks like. Paintings, when you want to figure out how to discover the forgery, you study that painting intimately. Because what happens when you are acquainted with the real thing, the replacements that come in don't fool you, okay? Nothing grand or exciting yet. So a lot of our problem with hearing God is we get bombarded with all of these voices. Our culture is so loud with noise. Now, it's getting even louder. Like, how many of you throughout your day know where your phone is at all times, right? Just think about that. You are constantly being barbated uh, with text, with your Facebook notifications, with news, with everything else constantly coming in at you, right? Constantly, over and over. You have encyclopedias worth of knowledge at your hands, right? All these voices are coming in at you. No wonder it's hard to understand what God is saying sometimes because it's hard to pick them out through the noise. So how do you hear what God is saying? Well, it's by spending time in silence with just his voice. What is his voice? His word, right? Uh, and that seems so simplistic at first, but this is what happens. As we study the scripture together as a family, as we separate ourselves from all that other noise, what happens is when these big decisions come up and these minor decisions as well, we recognize the wrong voices right away. We, we hear something we're like, man, that, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't align with scripture and that a red flare comes up. If it's equally good option, we're like, I don't know what Jesus wants us to do. Well, 
part of the scripture, part of this teaching of reading and community together is your first instinct isn't, I got to figure this out myself just between me and God. You're like, oh, God also gave us all this other group of people around us. God didn't make us to be solo. He made us to be a family. So you start getting all these other voices of people who know you well, and they see things that you don't. Um, but we still may get to the point where we're like, I don't know what God wants me to do. I, nothing is wrong, according to Scripture. Other people don't really like say one way or the other. They're equally good options. That's kind of where faith comes in together. Because here's the thing. Do you think you can screw up God's plan for you? Ultimately, the Bible says you can't. If you obey God, if you are faithful to God, if, you, if, if you're praying to him and you're seeking his advice and you have two or three or four equally good options and you choose, and if it's not God's plan, that's where faith comes in that he will close the door. If he doesn't close the door, that's fine. Pursue that. We kind of overcomplicate things sometimes as far as God's will for our life. We think that we have to have everything laid out in this 10-year plan ahead of time. But when we look at how God discipled people, usually he just brought them along with them, and they didn't know where they were going next or what they were going to do next, and that's okay. Most of our need for that 10-year plan and to know God's will for our lives, which usually means like we know what he's planning on doing with us every step of the way for the next 50 years, that's more about our need for control than about actually following Jesus. And once we can let that go and breathe, we can begin to have peace and follow Jesus as he leads us as our shepherd. So that is how the, his sheep know his voice. It's because they spend time with him and they listen to his voice. It's, it's, not, it's not that complicated. And I know I've been, where, I've been where you guys have been out. I wanted to make it complicated. I wanted that 10-year plan. Uh, and, and God never gives it to me. Usually when I make that 10-year plan, he immediately changes it. I'm like, all right, I see, I see where this is going. But then here's, here's what he goes on here. So um, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly because I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Here's what I want us to go to next. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep See the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. So once again, Jesus is comparing himself to the bad shepherds around him. He is pointing to the Pharisees and saying, you're like those shepherds back in Ezekiel's day. You care nothing about these sheep. And now, remember, this happens immediately after the healing of the blind man. What happened last week's sermons, right? Someone just got healed. He, he could see for the first time in his life. That's amazing. And what do they do? They get mad at him and kick him out of the, they kick him out of the fold. They kick him out of the flock. He's just saying, like, if you cared for your sheep, that's not a bad thing. But they felt threatened by that power. And so to, in order to keep control of that power, they needed to kick this guy out. Jesus is calling them out as bad shepherds because they don't care about the sheep. They care about their own power and their own benefits from that. Now, on the one hand, Jesus, like I said, the main point of this is to show how Jesus 
is complete contrast to them. Not only does he care about his sheep, he cares so much that he actually is willing to die for them. Not just die for them, too. I think we should read that. Lay down your life as more than just dying for them. He lived his whole life for them. Sometimes dying for someone is a huge sacrifice. Living for someone is an even bigger sacrifice in my book. Every choice Jesus made from the very beginning was the was in order to save his people. Every choice, every decision, every word he spoke was moving him towards that purpose. That is how much Jesus loved us, his sheep. Isn't that amazing? And he is contrasting himself to these poor shepherds. And when I read this hireling verse, um, because the Bible was written in a specific time, a specific place, a specific context. He is talking to the Pharisees, but he also knows we as human beings tend to make the same mistakes over and over. He knows that uh, as the Holy Spirit inspires John to write this, that these hireling sheep are continuing to be a problem, even in the Christian church. So even today, there are leaders in the church who do it for money and power and for their own benefit. It's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to watch out for that. That's why when the Bible talks about qualifications for elders and and pastors, if you read that in Timothy and Titus, if you read those qualifications, do you know what it's not? It's not it's not personality, it is not charisma, it's not preaching interestingly, it is all character. It's all about humility because he knows that the shepherding of his sheep is important. Um, But the hirelings still sneak in. Uh, And when I read this, one of the things that pop in mind is a couple years ago, it just made me so furious when I watched it. But I, I was watching this clip of these two mega church pastors um, talking together. One of them was a guy by the name of Kenneth Copeland. Uh, and they were talking. They were these huge megachurch, incredibly rich, had multiple jets, private jets to themselves. On what they're saying, their reasoning to justify why they had their own private airplanes uh, was because they can't mix among what they called these howlings on the, on the plane. They can't mix among them. How are they supposed to pray when they have these people who are just so unspiritual around them? That's a hireling. Those unspiritual people around them are supposed to be their sheep. They're supposed to be who they care for. When you, if you can say that and call yourself a pastor, you're not one of Jesus' pastors. Uh, I normally don't call people out like that, but that is clear black and white. You do not do that as a shepherd, under-shepherd of Jesus. Uh, and you can see that, too, in this whole wealth and prosperity movement. What they're teaching is that if you have faith in Jesus, he's going to give you a good material life now, which the Bible never says. Once again, wealth... Um, is not inherently a bad thing. Good health is not inherently a bad thing. Ultimate in this life now, making it ultimate, that is a bad thing. That is not what we live for. Um, but these people are saying, hey, if you just have faith, Jesus will give you this. What they say is like, I have faith, Jesus is going to give me a jet. They actually say, they actually do this. I need a new jet. My, my third one's just not doing it for me anymore. I have faith that Jesus will give me a jet. If you have faith, you will give to me, and then Jesus will reward you. 
So what ends up happening is these people give to him. Desperate people who are feeling the pinch and need physical needs give this money to these people. Uh, and then what happens is they get the jet. Lo and behold, it's a show of God's faith, but it's a pyramid scheme. Because when these people who have given what they need, when they have actual physical needs, do you think these pastors go, oh, let me help you meet that need with what I have extra? They go, no, you should have had more faith. That is not what a shepherd does. Uh, it's one thing to call out these mega pastors, uh, but it's another thing to see that in us. And that's what I want us to watch out for. Uh, obviously, you're like, I don't have a private jet. I wouldn't con people out like that. But on, on smaller scales, we use people. We use people that we're supposed to be giving up our lives for as we lead them to Jesus. We are, in many ways, as guilty as Kenneth Copeland's out there. It's a serious thing to think about because sin is serious. So I want us to examine ourselves this week as we read through this scripture together. How are we using people instead of giving ourselves up for people? And it's not a, a legalistic thing. We're not trying to give up our lives on our own. The only reason we have freedom to give up ourselves and our preferences and, and, and like, the only reason we feel, we feel we can even give up these things is because Jesus always did it for us. The reason we can make the sacrifice to say, man, this person really needs this money, and even though I want this thing that I was going to buy, even though I want this, this vacation, even though it's a really good thing, they need it right now, and I can make that sacrifice. Not because of me or any good in me, but because Jesus already gave that sacrifice, and I have that freedom now. So when we look at Jesus as the good shepherd, he loves us enough to enable us to also love others. Finally, I want to get to the last point. So we see that Jesus is the door. We see that he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives life abundantly to his sheep. And the good shepherd knows and is known by his sheep. And lastly, he says it repeatedly, but he says it very pointedly here. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I Lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it up. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So before digging into the weight of that last verse, can I just, one observation. The authority to lay down your life is one thing. But those people who say, Jesus never claimed to be God. No one but God has authority to take their life back up again, right? The Bible is clear. You can disbelieve Jesus' claim, but you can't say he never made the claim that he is God. He does not give us the option. It's repeatedly said over and over again. But knowing that, we've got to see the scandal of the gospel, the scandal at the center of Christianity is this, that we as human beings were made perfect, we're made to represent God. We're made in perfect communion with him. And we chose that we would rather have things our own way, even if it meant death. 
and evil and hatred and separation from God. And we deserve the full punishment of our sins. And, and people always ask, they're like, how could a loving God, how could he ever send people to hell? That's, that's the question. How could a loving God ever do that? But when you think of what sin is and, and all the hatred we have towards other people whom God loves, towards God himself, like if you've ever had a child that's been harmed by someone else, or a friend, or, or a loved one harmed by someone else. You love them, so you are angry at this other person. Think about that with God, who loves us more deeply than anyone else, who takes sin more deeply than anyone else possibly could. Like, the real question is not, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? The question is, how could a loving God not send everyone to hell? How could that even happen? How could he not punish this absolute horrible violence that we commit against each other, his loved ones. The scandal of the gospel is that God becomes a human being for our sake, and all that punishment that was supposed to be ours, he takes upon himself. And so now we go to Jesus, the person who took our sins upon himself to the point of death, and we allow him to take our punishment for him, for us. That's what Christianity is. It's allowing someone to take our punishment, allowing someone to take our place and to live in that reality. And so we see that Jesus did that. We see that he didn't only just say he was going to do it. We see several chapters later he did do it. But then something even more incredible happens. He does not stay dead. We do not worship a dead person. We worship a living God, a living God who became man for our sakes. And so, the center of Christianity is the scandal that we call the gospel. There's nothing we can do to ever earn a reprieve from our punishment. We deserve how. We deserve full punishment for our sins, but we don't have to take it. So if you are here and you've heard this gospel message or you have not heard the gospel message about what Christianity at its center is, um, but you haven't yet decided to put your faith in Jesus, let me just say this. He's there. He is there and he is willing whenever you are ready. All you have to do is turn to him, put your faith in him and say, Take my punishment. I give up all right to myself from this day forward, and I am yours. And that is what it means to be Christian. It's not something great. It's not that we're good people. Quite the opposite. It's we recognize how terrible we are and how desperate we are without Jesus. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray um, to close out this message. So. Father, I, as preaching through your scripture, I just frequently come upon my own limitations to communicate the depth of your love and the depth of this incredible grace and mercy that you offer us. So I pray that you would send your spirit to do that work, uh, that you would just show people yourself, uh, that you would show people your son 
and the depth of your love and your kindness and your patience towards us, and that that would move us towards repentance. That would move us towards a relationship with you, and that you would use your grace to destroy any sin and any stubborn rebellion that's left in us, Father, uh, as we surrender our whole lives to you. Amen.